seated. Well, uh, we turn to uh, Mark chapter 12 today that we might consider this great command, the greatest, the first of all the commandments. We've been working our way through the law of God, and we come to the pinnacle today as Jesus puts it to us, the first and the greatest commandment of all, which is the law and the prophets, that we should love the Lord our God with heart and soul and strength and mind. And the second, being like it, is that our neighbor is to be loved as ourselves, as we've considered together in previous studies. Well, let's uh, hear it as it's given, starting in verse 28, as Jesus is asked a certain question. Mark 12, 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, if this is what you have commanded of us, then grant what you command. Enlighten our minds these days to be able to understand and to know again this love, this love that is from God, the love that passes understanding, this love that is able to so redeem and to restore the fallen life of a human being that we might again attain to something of the very character and nature of you yourself. We pray that you would bless this, this sermon to a new direction in lives here today. There's someone who needs to hear this especially, who needs a, a new course, who needs to be received into the eternal love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would make this for them the day of salvation, the day in which they found the love that they had so desired and so needed. We pray that for all of us here that we might be restored and renewed after this image of the one who created us, that we would put on love, which is the bond of perfection, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, for Christ's sake. Amen. Jesus doesn't just inform our intellect. He forms our very loves. He isn't content simply to deposit into your, idea, into your mind some new ideas. He is after nothing less than new loves, new longings. His teaching doesn't just take aim at the mind's cool reflection, but also he invades the passionate regions of the heart and teaches us how to love. Ours is a religion of the whole person. That involves 
as we sang earlier, a fervent love. As Psalm 42 begins, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or the 63rd Psalm, O God, you are my God early or earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. The prophet Isaiah says, with my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, my spirit within me, I will seek you early. In the Bible, we are taught that this love is the law and the prophets. Love is the great commandment and the second that is like it. It is the fulfillment of the law. It is the new commandment that Jesus gives to us, the one that, where he says to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And therefore, as the fulfillment of the law, as Augustine said, you can love and do whatever you wish. That is, if you are truly acting in love for God and for your neighbor, you have done not only the first thing or the main thing, you have done everything. And the Bible holds before us a distinctively Christian love, a love that is the overflow of our experience of God's love that has been revealed to us in Christ and poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This passage, therefore, begins with the loving God and then gives us a command, the great command, to love God with the whole person. So this is, will be our study for the day. First, the loving God. Second, the great command. And third, the whole person. And then, as usual, we'll be making some application to ourselves and our world today. First, uh, my first point to you is simply the loving God. This is where the Lord starts in verse 29. When asked for the great commandment, well, Jesus says, let's just back up a verse, shall we? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This great commandment is grounded in the God that we love. In the very nature of God himself, even, where we read elsewhere, God is love. He ex exists eternally in three persons, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Persons bound together by infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. And John says in his first letter, therefore, that love is from God. That love is the richness of your life and mine, because it was first the richness of his. And someone will look at this passage and say, but wait a minute, this passage that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that the Lord is one. How then can God be three persons? Well, it's a very good question. In fact, I preached a whole sermon series on this. But let me simply say that the Bible confidently declares this truth not as a question, but as the great answer to all of life. For if God were a single, solitary being, isolated, alone, in the darkness of all eternity, just imagine what kind of God he might be. Imagine you have a solitary being alone before anything was. No one to love. No one to have fellowship with. No one to speak to. It's very hard to see even how such a God could know anything about love. He had no one to love. There was no one to have fellowship with. There was no one to speak with. How could he know anything about love and fellowship and speaking? He'd never done it before. I mean, he might be a righteous heavenly lawgiver, it's true. 
But what we are confronted with in the Bible is this one God that is, as a father, embracing us in his son, the son of his love, with the very same love. And so we proclaim Christ as the Lord who has come in love to lay down his life for his people and save them, and to proclaim a spirit as the spirit of promise that indwells us and gives life from the dead, as Paul goes on to say in another place that brings us into communion with God so that we cry out, not, oh, heavenly lawgiver, but Abba, Father, a much greater, a much fuller, a much richer vision. This is the God whom we meet, who is one. And if you don't desire him, I put it to you, you're thinking of a different God. Perhaps you're confusing him with someone else. The Lord is one. And you know, of course, when God made man, male and female, after his own image, he also said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become, what did he say? They shall become one flesh. Same word, as a matter of fact. This one that is a reflection of God who is one. So, as I say, if, like in so many religions, if God was from all eternity about a commanding, merely a solitary Lord, what would his good news of salvation be like? The gospel might be that he's the ruler, and you've broken the rules, but he'll forgive you somehow, and you won't be punished, and you can get some benefits even if you remain under his rule, and that's the way it is in countless religions. That's the good news. He's the lawgiver. You've broken the law. He'll receive you back by this means, and then you can have some benefits if you remain. But we, we, what we are confronted with here is, again, much richer, much fuller. God has come to receive us as his beloved children. He has come in love to sacrifice himself for us while we were yet enemies. He's come to dwell in us and him forever by his Spirit. And in this light... These commandments make sense. These two commandments that we are there for to love God with all that is in us and our neighbor as ourselves, treating others as we ourselves have been treated by God. This is the only thing that makes sense of these commandments. These commandments would not be the great commandments that they are unless God were first love. I'm not trying to separate love and law, you see. I'm saying that the law has no other explanation than the fact that God is love. And when we have started there, then we get the commandments right and everything else in life right. Then we get the gospel right. Okay. This is why God has created us as he has with love as such a powerful longing and, per and, and passion in our lives. This is why God has also done for us what he's done. For the whole Bible is, we read from beginning to end, a history of of a great love. It was in love that he made you and set his love upon you from the foundation of the world, we read. He chose you before the foundation of the world in love, predestining us to adoption, it says. That's what was in the be before the beginning, I guess. And God so loved the world that he sent his son, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This divine love that is with you and me every step of the way in this world. 
And now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus says, this is the great commandment. And he is the way. That is to say, if you are going to begin to keep this love, it has to be in the knowledge and love of God. And how can we know it? Well, we must start with Jesus, who is the beloved one, the beloved son. For without him, we cannot know God as a loving father. But he is the way. That is to say, with Jesus, we can not only know him as a loving father, we can know him as our loving father. And this makes all the practical difference in the world. The hymn writer, Isaac Watts, wrote, It is not to be expected that we should love God supremely if we have not known him to be more desirable than all other things. And of course, he was absolutely right. We always love what seems most attractive to us. But what kind of God, then, could so capture our hearts, our whole beings, to, to make our whole duty above everything else, and including everything else, to be his love? Well, all who have experienced and felt God's love, who have come to know the supreme affection of the living God, are transformed by that love, by degrees, into one whose principal ambition in life is to know him, to adore him, to know, to share something of that quality, to love God and to love others in his name. And so, you see, Jesus begins where we must begin, with the commandment, the commandment's object, the loving God. Start with that God. The commandment not only makes sense, it comes with a power that will displace all the other loves of your life. Which brings us, secondly, to the great command. In light of this God, you shall love the Lord your God. If this is the God who is, what greater thing could he possibly ask of us or command? God couldn't have given us any greater commandment than this because there is nothing more joyful, nothing more right, nothing more satisfying to us than to love God with everything that is in us, to employ all of our faculties in his joyful devotion and adoration. Oh yes, sin makes this love a great fight, agreed. It is not nearly as natural to us as love should be and as it soon will be for us. But this love is nevertheless every bit as delightful, wonderful, and enjoyable as God intended. This is the great command because it is the command of the great God. And you see that there is no asceticism here, as if what God really wanted was for people to be miserable, as if God wanted people to go off in a cloister by themselves and put on a hair shirt and forsake good food and adequate sleep or live alone in the desert. Is that the kind of God that there is? Is that love for God? No, love is a devotion to God, a joy and delight in him, a hunger and thirst to know him, indeed, that wants to join ourselves to him so fully that we would even enjoy and share and reproduce his character and his excellencies in ourselves as we participate in the divine nature. Love is the joy and gratitude that we experience in Christ for so great a salvation purchased at such a cost and given to us so freely. 
while we were yet enemies. And therefore it is the great commandment, which Jesus says elsewhere, is the fulfillment of all the law. For if we love God so greatly, it is no trouble for us not to have another God. It is no trouble for us to worship him in a way that brings him pleasure, or to honor his name, or to spend the day with him in worship. In fact, we will seek to be like him in all of our dealings with others. So Jesus explains, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Without this love, Paul writes, are all of the duties that we do are worthless. It doesn't matter, Paul says, if you have all faith so that you can remove mountains. Without love, you're nothing. And if you bestow all your goods to feed the poor and you give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, it profits you nothing. With this love, everything is perfectly, perfectly fulfilled. Everything is fully done. Without it, nothing matters. The greatest deeds, the highest faith. You say we still need faith and hope, right? Not just love. Well, yes, but that same passage goes on to say that love believes all things and love hopes all things, that this love is the fulfillment of all and it never fails. So you see, the Christian ethics has a radically different motivation and character than any moral vision of life and human beings where we think, oh, we need to do this and that and the other thing. That we are given this one all-encompassing command with an utterly unique power and motive and understanding true godliness. This command is the big one. This does it all. And if you don't have enough love for God, then what? Well, this love is supernatural. This love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we read elsewhere. And so Jesus says, if, look, if you fathers, he says, though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father, your heavenly father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That if you don't have it, well, you can start by mourning and confessing your lack and seeking it. For he who seeks finds. Lord Augustine's prayer again, O Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. If this is the great commandment, O Lord, fulfill it in us. This is the great commandment. And one more thing that we note here, by the way, this commandment involves, point three, the whole person. The whole person. It's the habit, you notice, of biblical authors, uh, generally speaking, not to quote a passage exactly word for word. That is done occasionally. But uh, more commonly, the authors will uh, give a a sense, a, um, a more full explanation, oftentimes, of a particular passage. And so it is here. The original passage says heart, soul, and strength. And yet, uh, the, uh, each of these words um, is, is all-encompassing. And perhaps in English and in Greek, they don't so clearly involve the understanding or the mind. Jesus here expands or explains the law, if you like, to be with heart, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, it's uh, been a habit of preachers for many years to take each of these words, 
and to have a series of sermons where you go through each one. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? Okay, what does it mean to love God with all your soul? What does it mean to love God with all your mind? And then with all your strength? And you know, fair enough, because these, these things do imply something of uh, a specialization, but we have to remember that especially in the original, um, the heart is in the Hebrew thing, uh, where the thoughts and the emotions dwell, the, the whole inner person, the soul, pretty much you, your inner life sometimes, but also your life, um, your, your strength. Um, again, these are just multiplied, all-encompassing words. So while I don't say it's inappropriate to divide it up into four different things and to concentrate on four different things, originally what we have here is just a, a variety of ways stacking up terms to say all that you are, all that you have, all that is in you, and therefore a radical demand of this ethic of love. Heart Soul, mind, and strength means all that you are, all that is in you, utter commitment, a level of determination that surpasses and envelops everything else. Every bit of your mind, will, and emotions is involved. And therefore, we are not only a people who are marked by knowledge and conviction of will and obedience, but also by deep inner experience, tender feeling, powerful emotion, and these things have to go together, as God made us. As Augustine again finally famously put it, we even come to God on our affections rather than our feet, that our desires for him have brought us to him. And love, as you know from your own experience, is always mixed up together with strong emotion. It comes never by itself. There's always this joy and this, this peace, this anticipation and hope and so forth. It, it's, it's all flowing from these things. So every emotion, every faculty, mind and will and affection flowing from the astonishing love of who God is and what we've received, this great love that has brought salvation that we have received. This is biblical love. It is not Plato's love of desire merely. It is not Kant's cold love of duty. Instead, it is a love that is utterly full. Desires that are not driven by whims, but are greatest desires in the moment. A love that rightly orders desires, that prioritizes the mind, that directs the will and the life. This mind-expanding, heart-changing, life-transforming love is the greatest command and the greatest power in the world to restore and remake a human life. Well, again, high on content, and I feel like I've just begun to begun to begin to explain what it is. This summarizes it all. But I would like to spend a few minutes considering how this works in action, how this changes the world. And I'm, I'm going to do this using an article from Matthew Paris, and you probably don't know, he's a former British diplomat and member of parliament and now a columnist for the Times of London. He's certainly no Christian. In fact, he was voted one of the 50 most important LGBT people in Britain. And that's why this article I'm about to read you from the Times 
is all the more striking and persuasive and challenging. Listen to his article. As he wrote this in the Times, he, his article is entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem, the crushing passivity of the people's mindset. He begins. Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that, as a boy, I knew as Nyasaland. Today, it's Malawi, and the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities but traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of the secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would never be would be better off without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely which I cannot help observing. First, then, the observation. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had, working for us, Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with their world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. 
And at 24, traveling by land across the continent reinforced this impression from Algiers to Niger, from Nigeria to Cameroon and the Central African Republic, and then right through Congo to Rwanda, Tanzania, and Kenya. Four student friends and I drove our old Land Rover to Nairobi. We slept under the stars, so it was important that we reached the more populated and lawless parts of the Sub-Sahara every day. We find somewhere safe by nightfall, often near a mission. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge something changed in the faces of the people. We passed and spoke to something in their eyes. The way they approached you direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. This time in Malawi, it was the same. I met no missionaries. You don't encounter missionaries in the lobbies of expensive hotels discussing development strategy documents like you do with the big NGOs. But instead, I noticed a handful of the most impressive African members of the pump aid team, largely from Zimbabwe, were privately strong Christians. Privately, because charity is entirely secular, and I never heard any of the team so much as mention religion while working in the villages, but I picked up the Christian references in our conversations. One I saw was studying a devotional textbook in the car. One on Sunday went off to church at dawn for a two-hour service. It would suit me to believe that their honesty, diligence, and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. There's long been a fashion among Western academic sociologists for placing tribal value systems within a ring fence beyond critiques founded in our own culture. Theirs and therefore best for them. Authentic and of intrinsically equal worth to ours. I don't follow this. I've observed that tribal belief is no more peaceable than ours, and that it suppresses individuality. People think collectively, first in terms of the community, extended family, and tribe. But this rural traditional mindset feeds into the big man and gangster politics of the African city the exaggerated respect for a swaggering leader, and the literal inability to understand the whole idea of loyal opposition. Anxiety, fear of spirits, of ancestors, of nature and the wild, of a tribal hierarchy, of quite everyday things, strikes deep into the whole structure of rural African thought. Every man has his place and call it fear or respect, a great weight grinds down the individual spirit, stunting curiosity. People won't take the initiative, won't take things into their own hands or on their own shoulders. How can I, as someone with a foot in both camps, explain? When the philosophical tourist moves from one worldview to another, he finds at the very moment of passing into the new, that he loses the language to describe the old. 
But let me try with an example. The answer is given by Sir Edmund Hillary to the question, why climb the mountain? Because it's there, he said. To the rural African mind, this is an explanation of why one would not climb the mountain. It's, well, there. Why interfere? Nothing to be done about it or with it. Hillary's further explanation that nobody else had climbed it would stand as the second reason for passivity. Christianity, post-Reformation, and post-Luther, with its teaching of a direct, personal, two-way link between the individual and God, unmediated by the collective and unsubordinate to any other human being, smashes straight through the philosophical, spiritual framework I've just described that offers something to hold on to, to those anxious to cash off a crushing tribal groupthink. This is why and how it liberates. Those who want Africa to walk tall amidst 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must be supplanted. And I'm afraid it has to be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete." End quote. Actually, let me read a long article, which I hope you, helps you understand something of the change in the world in the most difficult parts of the world, the change that needs to happen before any other real change can take place, the thing that changes people, that changes the way they look, the way they talk, the way they interact with others, the, the whole basis of their lives. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. He has rejected it. And he says this is what the world needs most. This is what Africa needs most. So it changes people in Africa. Well, I've got news, it changes people right here. Right now. If you believe in Jesus today, you will never be the same. You will live with new powers, new pleasures, new ambitions, new joy, new love. It's scary, and it's wonderful. And you need to begin to obey the first and great commandment. You see something interesting also in this passage, which I don't want to leave. But in conclusion, I, I bring you back. There is the scribe who asked a question of the teacher. Jesus, what's the first commandment of all? He heard his answer, and he was impressed. It stuck right to the center of the target. And he gave this approval to Jesus' teaching. Well said. You've spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And in reply, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. Not far. A religious man who has such an education, who is able to hear the truth and know it when he hears it, Well, to be not far from the kingdom is, is a kind of compliment, I guess, but also one that leaves you short. He is near, but he is not there. Why is this man near to the kingdom when he understands that God supremely requires men to love God with everything that is in them and their neighbor as themselves, that this is what God requires of us? Well, the first thing is this. If you recognize that this is what God requires of you, you come face to face with something very profound. Your failure. That you may have done lots of small things, but you have not done this for a moment. You recognize you have not for one second done your duty either to God or to man, nor will you whilst you breathe. You recognize that sin has so corrupted you nowhere more than on this very point, the most important of all, supremely to love God with all that is in you, that this is where sin has struck its deepest blow, which you really need. And this brings you face to face with your need for forgiveness and renewal. We lack this limitless love for God and our fellow men. Rather, we enjoy the most self-centered love in nature that taints everything. We commit many sins, but none so great as our failure to keep this commandment. And how lovely it sounds, right? That we should love God with everything we are and our neighbors ourselves. But those beautiful words are just the death knell for you and me if we think about them rightly. We are so far from keeping those commandments. We have never loved God so completely and passionately. We have never loved anyone else as we have loved ourselves. To selfish, small-minded people, these things more than others prove how much we need a Redeemer, a Savior, one who would not only die for our sins, grant us the, the righteousness of God, but then pour out into our hearts the love of God in us. The standard is right. But we are not right. We have done lesser things. We have not kept the great commandments. And to everyone who knows this, I say you are near to the kingdom, but you are not there. But Jesus is the way. You need a Savior. And this is what he saves us for and with and by love. A love that will receive you today when you call upon him. And I ask, also ask you, Christian, what is the vision of your life, of the service that rises before your eyes every morning as you live from day to day? What do you aspire to be and to do as a follower of Jesus Christ as you are? Is it first and foremost to know this power, this life-changing, world-changing power of love? Is this the main thing, the great thing, and the most important thing? For love and you do all. Love and you fulfill the law. Love and you live as God would have you live. Love and the great purposes of your life will all be fulfilled, no matter what comes. Is it too much? Well, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus 
to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, truly we have come face to face with a great God with a great love and a great need, a great disorder yet within our hearts. Disordered desires that have shrunk back at the very place where they should have been most advanced and most satisfied. We find that we are a people deeply in need, in need of love. And as this is what you have promised to us, to pour out the love of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us, we pray that you would give us your love. Fill us with your love. Not as the world gives. We pray that we might have this love that passes understanding and knowledge to be filled with all the fullness of God in Christ. We pray that this would be the turning point of lives today. That those who have lived for lesser things, that those who have sought lesser loves, might see the emptiness and the folly and be able to join and say, well said, teacher, to love you with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and one's neighbor as oneself is greater than all the other sacrifices that we could possibly ever make or bring to you. How great are you?